Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And if yours is like mine, it's starting to just fall open there automatically. And we're just getting started. Um, I'd like to read from verses 3 through 8 to set this in our minds. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. The Apostle Paul, moved by the Spirit of God to write these precious words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved, in whom in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. Stop right there. The Apostle Paul, just to bring us all to the same speed, is opening this the body of this great letter to the Ephesian believers who are called saints up there in verse 1 to the saints who are in Ephesus. He's writing to saints. He's writing to true believers. He's writing to the church. In verse 3, you notice, blessed be God, bless God. Is, is He's opening with a praise of God. In particular, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he opens with worship there in verse 3. The Father is being worshipped by Paul. And why is Paul worshipping him? It's because of all that the Father has done for him and therefore for them as well. As is repeated in verse in the verses 3 through 14, as we've said many times, that us, our, and we are repeated 13 times at least in that section. Okay? So, this is what the Father has done for Paul. This is what the Father has done for the Ephesian believers. This, this is what God the Father has done for all who are in Christ. Okay? All that He has done is in Christ, as verse 3 would say at the end of that verse, you know, in the heavenly places, in Christ. And we said early in other previous lessons that in Christ, through Christ, in Him, that's repeated 13 times as well. So the blessings that are promised are only for those who are in Christ Jesus. There are no spiritual blessings apart from Christ. There are no spiritual blessings in the heavenlies apart from Jesus Christ. God can bless you with material things. There's a common grace. But the blessings that Paul is talking about are, are only for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, Very unique people. It's much like um, Christ is the vine and the believers are the branches. The only way to to have a vital, the, the vitality of the, of the, of the vine is to be connected to the branch. And so we are in Christ. The blessings are ours that are mentioned here. So then, as we said, there are no spiritual blessings in the heavenlies for anybody outside of Christ, no matter how religious they are. Okay. Verse three, we said that in its, is a general statement of this blessing with every spiritual blessing. That's a general statement with no details. Verse 4 through 14, he moves in to give description, detailed descriptions of these blessings that are mentioned in verse 3. Okay. In verse 3, we said that it's like a spiritual treasure chest. And the following verses are the individual and specific jewels that make up that treasure chest. And by virtue of the repetition of the, the, the pronouns us, our, or we, the emphasis of this section, verses 3 through 14, is of unity. He, his emphasis is unity. Why do I say this? This is a shared reality. He's describing a shared reality. We all possess permanently, equally, and presently all these jewels. Okay? That's amazing. Um, Equally with the Apostle Paul, equally with him, you possess these gems. No saint is left out. No saint is deficient. No saint possesses more or less of these truths, verses 3 through 14. Therefore, 3 through 14 is absolutely true of every single genuine believer in Christ all the time. And never is it not true. 
What is the purpose then of the Apostle Paul in revealing these wonderful truths that we are looking at here? What is the purpose? Well, it's repeated, verse 6 and verse 12 and in verse 14, it has to do with worship. To the praise of the glory of His grace is verse 6. Verse 12, he repeats that where he says, to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, we'll repeat that. And that's what verse 3 began with. Blessed be God. Praise be God. So why is the Spirit moving Paul to write this? To move our hearts to worship. To move our hearts to be unified in the worship of God. In because of these gems, because of these truths. So these glorious truths are not only for our unity, uh, a spiritual unity, if you will, but it's, it's a unity in praise. It's a unity in worship. God's ultimate goal for us is worship. In fact, Pastor MacArthur wrote a book, I think it was his first book, called God's Ultimate Purpose, and it's worship. God wants us to worship. He created us to worship Him, and He saved us to worship Him. And these verse 6, 12, and 14 tells us, why did God do these things? So that our hearts would be moved to praise Him. Okay? To praise Him as He deserves. The creature is commanded to worship God, not only for who He is, which is enough, but for what He has done. For what He has done. And coming to our section, Ephesians 1, what is it that God has done that promotes His praise? Well, in the original Greek language here, verses 3 through 14 is 202 words. One sentence with 202 words. One long, continuous sentence describing our shared spiritual treasures, which describe that which God has done for us. What has He done for us? Look at verse 4, just reminding you. He chose us. The doctrine of election. And we can, we won't re-preach that here, though I'm tempted. <laughs> well, if you have questions, we can talk about it later. R.C. Sproul has a book, um, chosen by God that's worth reading. That's the first thing he's done for us that should move us to praise. Verse five, notice, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. That's the second thing he did for us that Paul writes down that should move the believer to praise him. So, it, so far, in Ephesians, the reason we gather to praise the glory of His grace is because He chose us before time and He predestined us to be His children. That's enough. But there's more. <laughs> there's more, right? Because that brings us to our text today, which is found in verses 7 and 8. And we're going to pick up two more brilliant stones, spiritual jewels that are like diamonds, the longer we gaze at verse 7 and 8, the more stunned you become by their utter brilliance. This is just just amazing stuff. It's humbling stuff. Your soul and mine, as a result of our study, should be stirred to praise and thankfulness. We will define our words in verse 7 and 8. The two gems are redemption and forgiveness. We'll define those words. We're going to look at how they're used throughout the Old and New Testament as quick as we can. And the understanding that we will gain, the understanding that God will grant us, will move us in our hearts together to worship Him, to worship Him in unity, to worship Him in joy, to rejoice. Um, these are grounds of, of, uh, of happy praise. Look at verse 7 and 8, if you would, please. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And then in verse 8, the first part, which He lavished on us. Redemption and forgiveness. Paul moves from what God had done before time. Verses 4 and 5 is prehistoric. He chose us before the foundation of the world. In verses 7 and 8, he, he moves to what he's done in time, through history. Christ's cross is what's being uh, referenced, through his blood. So now he moves prehistoric into history. What has he done in history? Not that the death of Christ was absent from the mind of God before time, but it's just that your redemption was brought about in history through the cross of Christ. Okay? All right. Now, Redemption. It's one of those great Christian terms. And I want to look again at verse, at the end of verse six and seven. Notice again when it says, in the beloved one, in the beloved, in him, we have redemption through his blood. Now, this is so wonderful. Look at verse seven, please. We have. 
That, that, in the original, this, this is, this is, this is speaking of possession. We possess presently, consistently, and permanently. Okay? And it's a fact. It's something we possess as a fact. And we possess the redemption that he's mentioning here. Okay? This is something we all possess. Fascinating. I, I just, I just, as you think about things you possess in this life now. That same word is used here to speak of this spiritual treasure. You possess redemption. Okay. Wow. Now, redemption, we need to pick that word up and look at it. Okay. In my mind, here's, here's this jewel we bring out of the treasure box and we pick it up and look at it and the light refracts through and it's brilliant and it's stunning and it's like, wow, this is great. Redemption. I'm going to, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to bring Greek terms to you, not to show how wonderfully smart I am because you know better than that. But God is so precise here that he wants us to see this brilliant gem from all these different perspectives. And we have to use Greek terms to the the spirit, use the Greek to express this. Okay, so I hope you allow me this. This is a compound term. That means two words together. There's a preposition before the verb or the noun, okay? Connected. Apolutrosin is, is the noun, okay? That it's from a root word, luo. Listen, luo means to loose. Luo means to set free. Luo means to release, to let go, okay? This word comes from that root. The verb for this word means to liberate by payment of ransom, to liberate by payment of ransom. In other words, it's to pay a ransom price to set someone free. The, the verb means this. You put the preposition in front of that verb, the Greek grammar, if it does, usually intensifies that Greek word. Okay? So I hope you're following along here. So the verb means to pay a ransom to set free. When you put the preposition on there, it intensifies that act. So the idea is this, to release completely by paying the ransom. It's emphasizing the release, the separation away from. Okay? I, you, who possess this redemption have been released and set free from. Okay? Um, it's used to ransom prisoners of war. It's used to, in the releasing of slaves from their bondage, even criminals from execution. Hebrews 11.35, the, the martyrs refused to accept the release, the ransom, so that they would have a martyr's crown, their martyr's reward. Okay, that same idea. In the Old Testament, the main event that is repeatedly mentioned and referenced is the Exodus event, as far as redemption. God's delivering Israel from the, the Egyptian bondage, remember with Moses back in 1440 BC, is known as the redemption of Israel. Okay, it's, that event is known as the redemption of Israel. And since your Bibles are there open, could you hold your finger here and go to Deuteronomy 7, way to the left to Deuteronomy 7, just to show you it as an example. Um, because this, 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 um, this idea of redemption, this reference of redemption is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the event of the Exodus. But I, I just want to show you how it's used in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7, I would like to read 6 through 8 so you see the context. You're going to see chosen and possession, a lot of the same similar terms that's used in Ephesians. You're going to see here in Deuteronomy, okay? Deuteronomy is Moses' swan song, so to speak, okay? It's to the second generation, of Israelites, the 40 years of wandering, those guys have all died. This is their children who are receiving this word before they go into Joshua or with Joshua into the promised land. Okay, look at verse six. For you are a holy people to the Lord, your God, speaking to Israel. The Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And then look what it says in verse 8. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, 
The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand. And what does your text say? And redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh. Okay. So all this to say, my point here is the, the great event of the Exodus, which is called redemption. Okay. Israel's redemption. Um, that event is referenced throughout Psalms in the Old Testament. That event. So if you can picture in your mind God using Moses and going to Egypt and re- delivering the Israelites out of slavery and physical bondage into the promised land. Okay? Alright. Now, in Isaiah 59, now as Israel's history goes forward, now God is sending messengers to Israel to speak of a future redemption. Okay, you got the historic one with Moses. Now in Isaiah 59, verse 20, it says this, A Redeemer will come to Zion. That's Isaiah 59, 20. A promise in the future of a Redeemer coming to Jerusalem. 700 years before Christ and 700 years after Moses. Okay, so this is speaking forward. This is mentioned throughout the prophets. Since that time, the believers in Israel were looking for the promised one who would come to redeem Israel. There's looking for this redemption. For instance, please go back to the New Testament and go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And look at verse 68 and 9. This is Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. He's prophesying about the one that John the Baptist is going to point everybody to. Look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us. And notice, accomplished redemption for His people, verse 69, and raised up a horn, a strength of salvation for us. Okay? So this, this is, this is expecting the one whom John the Baptist is pointing everybody to to be the one who will bring redemption to Israel. Okay, he's the redeemer. All right. Um, go to chapter 2, verse 38, please, of Luke. 2.38. Look at what it says here. Here's this uh, a widow who never left the temple. She's 84 years old in verse 37 and verse 38. Notice, at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him. This is the child who she's looking at, the baby Jesus, to all those, notice, who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Okay? Looking for it. So expecting this future redemption, expecting this future redeemer, a one who will be like Moses, Moses-like redeemer to come and bring a redemption to a future Israel. Okay. Now go to, uh, the, 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 the Acts 24, please. Sorry. Acts 24. And I have to go to all these verses just to, so you see this. I hope you don't mind. Um, if so, at least your Bible won't have dust in it. Uh, <laughs> look at Acts 24 and look at verse... What did I say? L- Luke 24, please. My bad. That's good. You, you know where Acts is. That's good. Luke 24. <laughs> Luke 24. I'm sorry. The road to Emmaus. The two on the road to Emmaus. In verse 21, if you, when you get there, notice what their hope was. Now remember, these two saw the crucifixion and they were expecting this Jesus of Nazareth to be the promised Messiah because they saw His miracles and they saw, heard His words. This is certainly the Messiah, the Redeemer. But they saw Him crucified and put to death. And look at verse 21. As they're on the road to Emmaus, the resurrected Christ comes alongside them. And they say in verse 21, But we were hoping that it was He, Jesus, who was going to, notice, redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things have happened. Okay, So this is their mindset. This is their expectation. There's a Redeemer coming. There's a redemption coming for Israel that's different than the one Moses brought about. But a Moses-like person is going to come to bring a Moses-like redemption. Okay. Now, the primary idea that they had was a deliverance like the one in Exodus, a liberation from their oppressors. Okay. 
They thought that this Moses-like Messiah would come and get rid of the Gentiles, right? Primarily, they were coming to deliver them, like from Egyptian bondage, from Rome's bondage. Okay, that's what they were expecting—a physical redemption. But we learn from the New Testament further that we, this redemption that we possess in Ephesians. The, the redemption that's spoken of in the New Testament is primarily, not exclusively, primarily a spiritual redemption. Okay? Alright. Um, there, we, the spiritual redemption is now, but there is a, a physical redemption in the future that's included in the whole enchilada, is, is, uh, my profs used to say. Montoya would say, yeah, the whole enchilada. Right? There's now and future. We possess now this spiritual redemption. There is a physical redemption. And you have to see this because this is so glorious, right? Look, go to, go to, uh, where am I going? Going to Romans 8. <laughs> Romans 8. This is just to show you that there is a physical aspect, okay? Look at Romans 8. In verse 17, you're going to see these terms glorified, And you get into verse 18, glory. Verse 19, the revealing of the sons of God. You're going to see in verse 21, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And you're going to see in verse 23, the redemption of our body. This is what's being spoken of here. This future redemption that's a physical redemption is the glorification of our bodies. Okay? We have a spiritual redemption now. There's going to be the final culmination in a a physical redemption, which is stunning. Look at verse 17. I'm just going to read down through 25 and just, this is worth, this is worth chewing on the rest of our days, man. If children, verse 17, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. Okay, so have that glorified in your mind. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings, plural, of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Future glory. Okay? Verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly. That's a present tense verb there. Waits eagerly. For what? For the revealing or the uncovering of the sons of God. Right now, creation is waiting for us to be finally delivered. Okay, look at what it says. Look at verse 20. He goes on, 4, 4, 4. He's explaining further, further, further. Verse 20 says this, For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly. When was it subjected to fertility? In the fall of Adam, fall of man, the curse of sin on creation. Okay, at that time, creation is dying in death. Okay, It's groaning. That's verse 20. Look at what it says again. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. It wasn't a final condemnation. There was a hope involved. What was the hope? Verse 21. Look at this, please. That the creation itself also will be what? Set free from what? Slavery. That's redemption. That's ransom. The creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Dude, is that right now? If you say yes, you need to go outside and cross the street again, right? This is not happening right now. Creation's still groaning. Creation's still waiting. It's like, Lord, how long? Creations, it's personified, it's fascinating. Creation is under the curse and the burden of sin because of man's fall. And it's in it in the picture given is this creation is longing and under the suffering that they had no creation was not culpable, man was culpable, and creation is under the great burden of our sin and the curse of God, awaiting for man to be finally fully redeemed. 
and it will be set free just as, just, uses redemption language, okay? Just as Israel was set free with Moses in, in the Exodus, just as I and you were spiritually set free from the power of sin, so too our bodies will be set free from the corruption that I'm still under and all creation at that moment in the future yet will be set free into our glories. It says there in verse 21, look at it again. It says, set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That means the children of God possess glory. What is the glory? It is Christ's glory. It is resurrection glory. Verse 22 starts with four. He's explaining further. For we know that the whole creation... What does your text say? Groans. Groans. That's present tense right now. Groaning. That's agony. That's under a burden. Okay, Sighing. Groaning. And suffers the pains of childbirth. Ladies who've had children, you understand this word. This is what creation is groaning over. Those kinds of pains. That's That's what he's saying here. Okay? Suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. It's happening now. Verse 23, and not only this, but also, in addition, the word also, in addition, we ourselves, notice, creation's not the only thing groaning. We ourselves, the believers, notice 23, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, which is what at the end of that verse? Verse 23. The redemption of what? Our body. You see, that's our future physical redemption, which is the whole enchilada. We possess now this deliverance from sin. Our soul has been redeemed and we possess that. There is a future aspect to this redemption that we are awaiting. Notice in verse 23, how is it that we come to groan? In verse 23, what is it that we have that causes us to groan? In verse 23, do you see it? Yes, the first fruit of the Spirit. The first fruit, if you think, is is the first grain that comes to ripe. And you take it, and it is but a sample of what the rest of the crop is going to be like. Do you get the picture? In this life, we have but a taste of the Spirit of God. We have tasted of this salvation. We have tasted of this redemption. It's like tasting mama's soup. It's not done yet. It's not finished. But here, man, try this. She goes, oh, man, I can't wait for dinner. Right? I have tasted of the Spirit of God. I have tasted, and so have you. Those moments that we that people said, oh, those mountaintop moments. Yes, it's, it is experiential. Forgive me. It is experiential. And we, our, our experiences cannot be trusted totally. But you know what? I have tasted of the Lord and He is good. And that's but a sample of what the future will be like. And that's what causes Paul to groan in verse 23. Groan in what sense? I long to be delivered from this body of death. To be in a glorified body in a sin-free world. Amen? You think uh, Russia and Ukraine Christians there would, are groaning for that? I mean, let's just bring that to bear here, man. This wicked old world with all its abuses and all its pollution and all its sin. Oh, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. Yes? To set us free. This is the future redemption. I'm spending way much, too much time on this, but this is good stuff to me. Look at verse 24. Since that's true of us, beloved, look at 24. For in hope... We have been saved. It's part of our salvation, this future redemption. In hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. We we don't have it already. Look what it says. For who hopes for what they already see? Somebody who's not right in his mind. That's who does that. (laughs) Right? Verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. You see, the Spirit's convinced us of what is coming. We've tasted. 
And we have this hope, this confident expectation that that which we have tasted, we will experience in its fullness when the redemption of our body comes and creation will be set free. There'll be no more curse. That excites me. I've experienced this sin world. I've experienced enough of it. There's nothing. I'm not searching for anything in this world that, you know, that's like, well, maybe this will be better than Christ. No, I'm done with the world. Right? Christ is fully satisfied. Christ, he's given you that taste. And we long for the next world. We long for the redemption of our bodies. Right? Okay, go back to Ephesians, please. So this redemption that we possess in verse 7, it does include a body in the future like a physical redemption, like Israel. But we, we, so the, we here saints are redeemed. We are liberated. We are liberated in our soul from the penalty and the power of sin. The future that we just looked at, the redemption, that we will be delivered from the presence of sin. But right now we've been delivered from the power and the penalty of sin. Okay? Now, look at verse 7. In this redemption that we possess, what was the price paid? His blood. Through his blood. You see it there in verse 7? We have redemption through his blood. This is the means by which the redemption came about. The blood of Christ. The shedding of his blood. His death is what obviously he's mentioning. The beloved one of God died to redeem, to pay the price, to set you free. The bloody cross of Christ is where the price was paid. Through his blood, then, is referring to his sacrifice. He gave up himself as the ransom to deliver us from sin. This is the center of the gospel. If we ever get tired of this, it's, we have grown very cold because Paul repeatedly speaks of this emphasis of the blood of Christ in, in delivering us and redeeming us. Now, I want to show you some different places here. Can I? Can you go to Mark 10, please? Mark 10 and look at verse look at verse uh, 45 Mark 10 45 and these are this this idea of Christ being a ransom this idea of Christ offering himself through his blood through his death I just want to show you different places it's not exhaustive of course this is nothing new to us but it is it is what Paul is emphasizing here verse 45 please notice for even the son of man 1045 for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve he came to serve and what does your text say to give his life a ransom for many So there, even before the cross, Christ is referring and saying that his life will be a ransom for many. A ransom obviously has to do with redemption, has to do with the deliverance. It's the price paid. His life is the price paid. It is the blood of Christ. Go to, please, 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1. Verse 18 and 19, Peter writes in verse 18 where he says, Knowing that you, talking to Christians, were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, certainly be talking to Gentiles, but look at verse 19. What were you redeemed with? Precious blood. As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Okay, So Peter obviously is showing the, the cost, the worth of redemption. The cost of your redemption was not silver and gold. And isn't that interesting? That's the highest currency on the planet. 
What's even greater than the highest currency on the planet is precious blood, not just precious blood, but it says in verse 19, is of a lamb unblemished. So his blood is is the purchase price of our redemption, the purchase price of our souls. Okay, And it speaks, this ransom idea speaks of a substitutionary sacrifice in the place of. Okay, all right. Um, I must take you to the left to Hebrews chapter 9, please. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews is a bloody book because it's very Old Testament, right? Very rooted in Leviticus. I love that because Leviticus is my favorite book. (laughs) Look at Hebrews 9, verse 11 through 14. Look at the argument here. This is so glorious. Now, remember, this is written to Jewish people, Jewish believers who are rooted in Old Testament passages. Verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And then verse 12, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained, notice what it says, eternal redemption. Okay. So the bloods of goats and calves, which obviously is referring back to Old Covenant, Mosaic law, Levitical law, those sacrifices did not do anything for the believer. What, what they did is that they pointed to the greater one who would fulfill it. And that greater one is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He is the one whose blood we have redemption. Okay. Now, listen to Titus 2.14. Speaks of the same redemption, but listen to what it says. Speaks of Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Okay. So there's that, there's that ransom substitutionary idea where Christ gave of himself and the emphasis is this is his will. This is his, his passion himself. He wasn't reluctantly sacrificed on the cross. He willingly went there to fulfill the plan of God the Father out of love for God the Father and love for sinners. He went there to give his life a ransom to purchase them from the slave market of sin, to deli- to redeem them through his life, through his blood. Okay? We possess this now. Listen to Galatians 1.4. And I'm, I, I, you don't have to turn there just for the sake of time, but if, if you allow me, Galatians 1.4, listen to the same idea. Paul, the author of Galatians, says of Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. Okay, Again, the substitutionary aspect. Galatians 4, 5, 4, 4 and 5, listen to what it says. But when the fullness of time came, that is the time predetermined by God, when that time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? So that he might redeem those who were under the law. The Father sent him on purpose for that purpose. Go to Galatians 3, please. This is a massive subject, and I'm trying really hard to uh, condense it. (laughs) Galatians 3, look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us, notice, from the curse of the law. Why is it called the curse of the law? Because the law curses all sin. All sin incurs the condemnation of God, the wrath of God, the righteous indignation of a God who's righteous. His law must condemn sin. Since we're all sinners, it says here that Christ redeemed us out from the curse of God's law. There's no other, there's no other way to come out from under the curse of the law, by the way. You're not going to work your good works to get out from the curse of the law. You are condemned by God until Christ redeems you. 
The blood of Christ is the only purchase price that God the Father will accept for, to set you free. Think of that. It's not how hard you try. It's not how good deeds you do. It's not how many times you read your Bible in a day. Look how holy and great I am. No, 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 no. The only price that the Father will receive to set you free is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's good stuff. He is the only way. He is the only way. He Look at this again in verse 313. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do it? having become a curse for us. Is that not amazing? He himself became that which God hated in our place in order to deliver us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it like this, He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Right? God made him that sin. He he. He so identified with our sin that he became a curse for us. And that's how he redeemed us. Because look at verse 13. He finishes it with this. For it is written in the Old Testament law, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That is evidence that God put his curse on Jesus Christ. The son of God was cursed in your place in order to redeem you from the curse of the law. Does that not make you dance in the street? That should make us very charismatic. (laughs) That should make me very happy. I'm no longer under the curse of God. There's no more condemnation. Christ has removed it. He took it upon himself. We have, Ephesians 1, we have presently, equally, permanently, this redemption of our souls. We have it. Awesome stuff. Um, Galatians 2.20. Look at Galatians 2.20. I love this verse here. He says, I have, Paul writes, been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives, present tense, in me. In me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And what does he emphasize? The last part of 21. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. There's that idea again. That ransom idea. He gave himself up for you. The sinless Son of God left heaven's glory to take your place. So that you could be set free from the curse of the law. To wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. That's good stuff. That should make us happy. First Peter 2.24 says he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He carried, if you could, the, the language there in 1 Peter 2.24, the, the idea, if you can picture it, is like carrying this, this, this load, uh, and it's our sin. Jesus Christ took our sin upon his body on the tree when he went to the cross. He bore our sin there. Right? Wow. And was treated on that cross by God the Father as though he committed all your sins. And yours. And mine. Wow. Listen to uh, Isaiah 53. One of the most, most evangelistic New Testament type verses in the Old Testament. It's so clear that the Jews, the Orthodox Jews, ripped this chapter out of their Bible. Because you can't get away from this is Christ. Listen to Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, just as an example. Listen to these words. 700 years before Christ, listen to the verb tenses. Okay? Listen to this. He was despised. What tense is that? Past. And this is 700 years before Christ. Hmm. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one with whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. Look at the substitutionary aspect. 
pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. That's amazing. So look how clear that is. 700 years before Christ. Look at the tense of the verbs. It didn't say this will happen. It says it's already happened. There's different ideas about it, but I like the one that's this. This is prophetic. Looking forward, it's so certain to happen in this manner that God can put it in past tense as though it's already happened. That's how sure it was 700 years before the event. Okay? But notice the substitutionary aspect in our place. He took our place. He gave his life for us. Okay, redeemed. (laughs) It's to be liberated by the ransom price paid. As we've been saying, the death of Christ is substitutionary. It's in the place of another. And that substitutionary death has liberated us from the bondage of sin, from the curse of God's law, so that condemnation is no longer ours. Being purchased by the blood of Christ, we are said then to be bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You've been purchased, you've been ransomed. You've been bought by God. Listen to this incredible, often overlooked, listen to Acts 20, verse 28. Apostle Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. Verse 28, listen to this. This is amazing. Be on guard for yourselves, Paul writes to the elders, and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, For what reason? To shepherd the church of God, which church? Which he purchased with his own blood. Which God purchased with his own blood. All right? That's pretty cool. Obviously, the deity of Christ is mentioned there because whose blood was shed and he is God. So God purchased his church with his own blood. Again, purchase price, ransom price, redeemed is the blood of Christ Jesus. One last thought on this is Revelation 5. This is a heavenly scene. Look at verse 9. Revelation 5, verse 9. And this heavenly scene still identifies Jesus as the one who ransomed. Look at verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seal, for you were slain. And that word slain there means to have a throat slit. It's a sacrificial term. It's, it's how you kill a lamb. You slit their throat and it bleeds out. That word slain is the Greek term that refer- speaks of slitting a throat. So this is a sacrificial term. You were slain slash sacrificed and purchased for God with your blood. And notice what he purchased. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You see, his sacrifice is the purchase price from every tongue and tribe and people and nation to make them his own. He redeemed them by his blood, by his death. So then the sacrificial death of Christ paid the price that was demanded by God's law. The wages of sin is death. And so he does that. Please go back to Ephesians 1. So when he says here in verse 7, in him we have, we possess right now the redemption through his blood. To whom was the ransom paid? There's all kinds of heresies around this thing, right? To whom was the ransom paid, right? Some say it's to Satan, the ransom theory, which is to say that God and Jesus Christ were beholding to Satan. That sounds ridiculous to me, just on the surface. You know what it is. (laughs) It was paid to God. Who's the offended party? 
God is. The Old Testament sacrifices, the Mosaic law, to whom were those sacrifices made? To God, Yahweh. Did they not point to a greater sacrifice? The, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ, then who then is His sacrifice to? God. Because He's fulfilling the Old Testament sacrifices. So, if you are in Ephesians, go to chapter 5. And just see it in one place. We're not going to chase this around, but I just want you to see it. Ephesians 5, 2, and you could have turned to Hebrews 9, 14, and others. But look at 5, 2. Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in love, just as in this way Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. There's that ransom, substitutionary idea. Look at what it says. An offering and a sacrifice to who? To God is a fragrant aroma, right? So his sacrifice of himself was to God to appease God in his wrath. Satan has no binding on God. Satan's God's devil. In fact, you could say it like this. Satan's God's servant. He only does what God allows him to do. How about that? He's a rebel. But he can only do what God allows. Just read Job again. Read Luke 22 again. Peter, Satan's been asking permission to sift you like wheat. Right? Don't you think Satan would have loved to destroy Peter and kill him? How come he didn't? Because Jesus wouldn't let him. It's all that's to say. The ransom paid is the ransom paid to God to deliver sinners from the penalty of the law, the curse of the law, from the penalty of sin, from slavery to sin. The shackles have been set free. I and you are no longer enslaved to sin. Romans 6 says we are enslaved to righteousness. We are enslaved to God. He's delivered us so that we possess this redemption. Now, if you go back to Ephesians 1, look at what it says here, please. We have redemption. We have this release, this freedom through his blood, through his death. And then look at where he goes in verse 7. He's going to give a further definition. What do you mean by this redemption? This is not merely physical. This is spiritual. How do we know? Because it's equated with the forgiveness of our trespasses. See that in verse 7? This redemption is further identified, the forgiveness of our trespasses. I think those who recognize that they are sinful find great joy in the reality that they are forgiven. Look at what, the word for forgive is a glorious term. It means, listen to this definition, this Greek term means this, to send away from, okay, to release, it's very similar to the redemption, but it's a whole different word. It, 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 the idea is to let them go away, to have them no longer, whatever it is you're possessing, to let them go, to release them. As it refers to our sins, Thayer, who is a grammarian, says this, it is as if they had never been committed in the first place. This releasing of the sin so that it goes away from me leaves me in this condition as though I never committed those sins in the first place. Does that make sense? They're gone. As if I never committed them. He uses terms that are just incredible. We like to play the Catholic and hang on to those sins, but you know what? They're gone, dudes. They're gone. He cut them loose. Why do we want to pack them around? Let them go. Take God at His word. Take God at His word. He says you possess redemption right now. What does it mean to possess this redemption? You have the forgiveness of your sins. Wow. You mean I don't have to do anything? No, He did it. We just read about through his blood. How does this forgiveness come to you? Through his blood. When you believe, you you receive this redemption, this forgiveness through his blood. The means of your forgiveness is through his blood. Okay. Look at what it says again. Forgiveness of our trespasses. Picks a term that speaks particularly of deviating from a path. 
overstepping. That's why it's trespass. When you trespass on someone else's land, you're going places that's forbidden. You shouldn't go there. What is what are you deviating from? From the righteous path of God, from the law of God, from the righteous standard of God. You're deviating from God. You're disobeying God. He says in verse 7, notice, the forgiveness, the release from our disobedience. And he uses that that personal pronoun, our, this which I possess, this which I committed. Right? The trespasses, and he uses the plural, trespasses. He's this idea of every single one I've committed, I am forgiven of. Did he not die for all your sins? Just the ones he knew about. You mean there's some he's ignorant of? Now you got problems. God's not om- omniscient. God's, God's death on the cross wasn't um, full as, fully satisfactory to God. Didn't have enough blood to cover everything, just a little bit of your shoes. I sure hope you make it. No. Our trespasses, my, 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 tre- my crossing over. Look at 2.1. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Those very same things. This is what I'm forgiven of. I'm released from that. That's what it means to be redeemed. Okay? Wow. So then, in 1.7, when it says we have this redemption, we have this forgiveness, this release from the penalty of our sins, which our sins deserve, which our sins earned. I've been delivered from them. In, in, we won't turn there, but can I remind you of Leviticus 16? God gave to Israel a feast, Yom Kippur, right? The Day of Atonement. The priest, the high priest on that day, as a representative of Israel, would offer sacrifice, not only for himself as a sinful man and a priest, but then he would take, he'd have two goats. One, he would come and he would slit his throat, offer him as a sin sacrifice for Israel, sacrifice for sin. The second goat, which is known as the scapegoat, the priest would lay his hand on on the head of this goat symbolically transferring the sins of Israel to this goat. Do you remember what they did with that goat? They took it out into the wilderness and let it go. They released him, (laughs) never to return to Israel. That Day of Atonement shows the two aspects of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He pays for your sin, but also at the same time, your sins as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103, verse 12. That, that scapegoat went out into the wilderness, symbolic of those sins going as far away from Israel as they can go, never to come back, never to return. Think of this. Micah 7, 9 says your sins have been thrown into the deepest parts of the sea. Why does he say that? Because there ain't nobody going to bring them back up again. They're way down there in that Mariana Trench in the Atlantic Ocean, right? Forty-some miles down there. Your sins are even farther down than that, never to be brought up again. As far as the east is from the west, you know how far that is? It's still going. It's still going. He uses that language to put a picture in our mind. Our sins are totally, completely forgiven, never to return to us. No one is going to bring something, a charge against you on Judgment Day that God hasn't forgiven. There is nothing that someone's going to dredge up in your life. If you've come to Jesus Christ, His redemption is complete. Through His death, all your sins have been wiped away. You are totally, absolutely forgiven in Jesus Christ. You possess redemption, the forgiveness of your trespasses. Why do we live as though that's not true? We're calling God a liar. He died for some of your sins. You should get up angrily. No, preacher, he died for all of my sins. Unless we don't believe that. (laughs) Well, it gives me opportunity to go to Colossians 2 then. (laughs) This is for free. (laughs) Colossians 2. You have to see this. This is awesome. I love this. 2.13. 2.13. See, I, I know I'm a sinner, so I rejoice in the reality that God has forgiven me of all my sin. I don't even care what you think about me. God has forgiven me, right? And I want you to bask in that. I want the church to bask in that truth. Because that's where joy comes from. That's where worship's fueled. You know what I mean? 
If we all believe this to a greater degree, do you not know we will gather here with an intensity to worship? Look at 2.13. When you were dead in your transgressions and your uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, which means having forgiven us. What? Oh. Now, the Greek term for all can be confusing. It means all. <laughs> Probably, I don't know what the Russian word is for all, but it means all, right? You're going to eat all the soup, you've ate it all, man, right? This is all. Notice what it says, all our transgressions. He picks it purposely. All of them. And it's not all of them that you committed up to this point, and you sure hope you make it from here on out. It's every one the rest of your life until you are in Romans 8 redemption. That's incredible. That's incredible, beloved. That's glorious. Back to, um, and I'll finish, I promise. Ephesians 1. There's so much more to be said. Look at verse... Yeah, I need to get done. <laughs> um, look at what it says in verse 7. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness, the release of our trespasses... Okay, we're released from them, and look at this. Look at where did this come from? What is the what, what is the source of this redemption and forgiveness found at the end of verse seven? According to the riches of His grace. Oh. According to, in harmony with, motivated by. According to means all of that. Look at what it, what motivated the forgiveness is the riches of His grace. Not just His grace. That would have been sufficient according to His grace. We would all applaud. Yes. But He goes farther. He says the riches of His grace. Ooh. The word riches means abound. It means wealth. It means plentitude. It means a whole bunch. Bill Gates type of dollars. And more. Because it's God, it's infinite. Infinite. Now think of this now. What Paul is saying in verse 7, that your redemption and forgiveness is guaranteed forever because it's from the infinite, infinite grace of God. Grace is gift. It's unmerited favor. It has no limit. It has no boundaries, is what he's saying. He's using languages that's superlatives, man. It's just off the chart, right? So then it's it, the opposite would be poverty, having a lack of. Since God the Father, listen here, since God the Father has a wealth of grace, the idea is this, there is no fear of running out. There's no fear of God running out of grace. We have forgiveness as long as God has what? Grace. Now think about that, please. You have the forgiveness mentioned as long as God has grace. How secure is your redemption? How secure is your salvation? Can you lose your salvation? If you can, God quit being gracious. And that sounds blasphemous to me. This is just another way of saying eternal security. You are eternally secure in Christ because God has infinite riches of grace. And you can't outsin His grace. Romans 5.20 is, is sin abounded? What did grace do? Shrink? No, it's super abounded. It's super abounded. Far and beyond. It, it's, it surpasses. Your forgiveness is that Sure. Because it's from His grace. Okay? Hallelujah. It will never end. And then verse 8, He just can't hardly contain Himself, which He lavished. He uses His languages, which He lavished on us. God the Father, this grace, this riches, this plentitude of grace, this unlimited grace, He lavished that on us. The cross of Christ manifests the infinite grace of God. 
to look to that cross and be stunned afresh, that that's grace that's unlimited. Because that's where your redemption took place. That's where your forgiveness is. That's good stuff. That's the unity of the church. This is what he's talking about. Every single saint, this is true of. We are unified in that. Division within the church is is sinful that, that God hates. And he wants Christians to return to these truths and embrace these truths because this is the foundation of our, of our unity and the unity of praise. Because as verse 6 said and verse 12 said, verse 14, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So that you are forgiven. You know what that requires of us? Because I gotta put an imperative in here somewhere, right? All this great indicative, all this great truth. Okay, what are you gonna do with it? Well, I'm, we're gonna worship, but can I just read one verse and then I'm done, I promise. I think. Listen to this. Listen to this. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Now listen. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now we just saw how he did that. Now that's how you're to do one another. How about that? Have you been forgiven? Then forgive much. So here's the deal. If you're not a Christian, you're not forgiven. You stand under condemnation right now. You stand under the wrath of God. And all of this that we spoke of is not of, for you. So then I would say to those, why resist this? Why reject the grace of God? Why resist the grace of God? Why would you mock God, those who don't believe? Come to Christ. Come to Christ in repentance and faith. Trust him. He offers forgiveness to all who will call on his name. He will reject no one until the day of grace is over. Come to him. Today's the day of salvation. This is our message to the world. Dear Christian, I trust that as you've soaked in this brine, God would produce in us a greater affection for him, a greater thankfulness, a greater depth of thankfulness, and a greater desire to want to serve him with all of our heart with joy. With joy. You know why? Because you're forgiven. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. Well, Father, we praise you for the cross of Christ, our redemption and our forgiveness. Help us, Lord, to live out this truth that we are forgiven of all our sins. Now help us to live that way towards one another. Help us to reflect your glory. And I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, that you would save them, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.